0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, May 8th. I'm Marco Werman. More violence in the besieged Syrian city of Homs, despite the presence of UN observers there. We'll hear from our own reporter who traveled to homes today. Also, a new government coalition in Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says it could mean new talks with the Palestinians.
1: I don't know how you advance the negotiations, let alone conclude them, without engaging them. And we're prepared to engage them at any time, any place. The world is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at
0: heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World Unacceptable levels of violence and abuse are continuing in Syria. That's according to United Nations and Arab League envoy Kofi Annan, whose ceasefire plan was supposed to stop the fighting. Annan gave the U.N. Security Council an update on Syria today. He told the council that the U.N. ceasefire monitoring mission is the only remaining chance to prevent a civil war. About 60 U.N. observers are in the country now, and there are plans to increase their number to 300 by the end of the month. Today the world's Laura Lynch travelled with some of them to the city of Holmes.
2: We follow the UN monitors to a final checkpoint. From here we're told you move forward at your own risk. We do, carefully, close to the edge of Caladia. The streets are empty, the shops are closed. Bullet casings litter the ground. A man's black shoe sits in the middle of the sidewalk, perhaps lost in a rush to get away from the violence. An army officer in charge of this sector says everything here is safe, no shooting.
3: All forces all under control. Nobody do anything in order and we stop any firing.
2: But only a few hundred yards away, the battle between government forces and the rebels continues. Two blocks from here in the other direction and despite the violence, people try to carry on with their lives. But this man who didn't want to give his name described every day as a fight to survive. Life is very difficult here, he says. I have a shop in this area and I haven't been able to open for business for four months. But then he reveals a further, harsher reality of living on the edge of a battleground. My cousin who was an engineer was killed, he says. So was the wife of my other cousin and their children. They were killed sitting in their car. At that point, the army commander walks close by. The man sees him and says he can't talk anymore, so he makes a gesture instead. Pointing at the officer, then at himself, he draws his hand across his throat. Too much talking, he's suggesting, could also get you killed. Down the road, a school has become a refuge for 16 families. Maisa is using the kitchen to clean the dishes, a washing machine rumbles nearby. She's been here for three months with her twin seven-year-old sons sleeping on the floor. We left where we were living because of all the attacks, she says. Our house was completely destroyed. Maisa, too, has further, deeper troubles. But she stops and sighs for a moment before saying that her husband, father and brother have all been killed. And not, she says, because they were fighting for the opposition. No, they weren't rebels, Maisa says. They were trying to rescue people when they were shot dead. But she doesn't hesitate when asked who shot them. Bashar's gangs, she declares, blaming the president. If Kalidia is the front line for the continuing battle in Homs, the district of Baba Amr, a short drive away, is now the battlefield left behind. Quiet now, the intense bombardment carried out here in a month-long siege that started in February drove out the rebels. But it left a cityscape scarred by ruined buildings. Rubble lines the road. And it is here that I find Fatima pushing a cart filled with food supplies she just picked up from an aid organization. Baba Amr is home for Fatima no matter what. We've lived here for a long time, she says, But when the shelling started, we left, and we didn't come back until the end of March. She invites me back to her home to see the damage. Holes punched in the wall by shelling have been covered over with plywood. Broken windows are covered up, but it's still livable. So she plans to stay with her children and grandchildren, though she still worries. Fatima admits it's hard to know who to trust. She sighs and says she just doesn't know what will happen next. In this city, as in others across Syria, a small band of UN monitors is trying to keep the peace. Yet even here in Baba Amr, where the battle is officially over, the sound of gunfire is still easy to hear. And that sound makes it harder to believe a true ceasefire will become a reality anytime soon.
0: The world's Laura Lynch joins us now from Syria. She's back in Damascus. And Laura, sounds like a long day for you. You were able to get to homes, but what kind of restrictions are there on your movements generally in Syria?
2: Well, what's happened now, the the, the rules of the game seem to be that for foreign journalists, uh, the government really doesn't want us to go to a lot of places, the reasoning being from them that that it is simply too dangerous to go. But the fact is, you can't get through those, those checkpoints without government permission or now with the UN monitors. And so the government is now telling us if you go with the UN monitors, that's fine. You can head out with them. And increasingly, journalists are turning to doing that. But, Marco, I tell you, this going with the UN is an interesting exercise all in itself.
0: Yeah. What is it like?
2: What happens is that... Um, the night before you're, you're hoping to go out, you get in touch with the UN and you tell them of your interest in heading out. And then uh, they will tell you perhaps later in the evening what time you need to be at the UN headquarters in the morning, but they won't tell you where you're going. And they also make it very clear to you that you are not embedding with the UN, that you are simply being allowed to follow them. And you can follow them to where they're going and you can get through the checkpoints that way, but you are not with them per se. So, showed up this morning and found out that we were going to Homs. Uh, there were other journalists too, and uh, eventually the UN trucks moved out and came out of the building and headed onto the highway, and then we just raced after them. It was like going out in a convoy on the highway up to Homs, and we had to keep up with them all the way.
0: Right, and how many monitors did you follow this morning?
2: Well, we we took one convoy up to Homs, which was actually affecting um, uh, a changeover uh, in monitors there because there are some station there in Homs permanently and then when we went into the districts with the monitors who are stationed there I would say there were roughly half a dozen of them and when you think about the fact that that this is a big city and a lot of territory to cover it doesn't strike you as a lot now the UN has maintained that they are making a difference here and when you do talk to people that they do say the level of violence has definitely gone down but it, as you can hear, as you heard in my report, it, does, it isn't ending yet. And the UN is hoping that it can get 300 monitors in here within the next few weeks.
0: Right. So once you were in Homs, how close did you stick to the monitors, or did they stick to you?
2: We left the hotel in Homs where they were stationed and drove into Kalidia first, and that took a few minutes. It's very close. It's very close, and you, you change from one reality to another. But then the monitors drove off on their own. We were, we were left at this checkpoint where we were told it was at, at our own risk to go any further. The monitors continued, and we did not go any further. They drove right into what you might call the heart of the action. Um, I didn't see them again for the rest of the day. Uh, we were in Khalidia for a while, and then we went over to Baba Amr on our own, Uh, and were let through because they knew that the U.N. was there and they were looking around and the journalists were coming in too. So we were allowed into Baba Amr under that proviso. Um, Also understanding that uh, the shooting and the shelling has ended in Baba Amr, so it's considered to be a relatively safe place to go.
0: You know, it's interesting, this this district in Baba Amr in your story, just uh, in, in your story, not so long ago, we were doing interviews on the program with people in that neighborhood in Baba Amr telling us about the daily violence You met one woman who had returned to the district. Is she typical of a lot of people come back?
2: No, I would not say that at all. It it had a few more people in it than Kalidia did, which is an absolute ghost town. But uh, I would say that judging by what I saw, maybe 10% of the population has decided to come back. And I, I think that's a matter of whether they feel safe, whether their homes actually survived the bombardment. Um, and how close and how strongly attached they feel to living in that district. For some people, have lived they've lived there all of their lives. And no matter what the place looks like now, no matter how much damage has been done, it's home for them, and they want to be there.
0: The world's Laura Lynch in Damascus. Thank you very much, Laura. You're welcome. People in Israel woke up to a new government coalition this morning. Secret late-night talks on the deal were so secret and so late that the news didn't even make the morning papers. Just days ago, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had announced early elections to be held in September. Then he cut a last-minute deal with the head of the opposition in Parliament. The world's
4: Matthew Bell has more from Jerusalem. Netanyahu's surprise move gave birth to a coalition that one Israeli political commentator described as 100 tons of concrete. Out of a total of 120 seats in Israel's Parliament, 94 are now aligned with the prime minister. That gives Netanyahu a broad mandate on issues that deeply concern Washington, starting with Iran's nuclear program. Netanyahu and his new coalition partner, the leader of the Kadima party, Shaul Mofaz, held a joint news conference today. Netanyahu said the men have been discussing Iran for a long time. The discussions are serious, he said, and in the future they will also be serious and responsible. Iran has been a point of public disagreement for this new political partnership. Mofaz is a former military man who's been part of a chorus criticizing Netanyahu and his defense minister, Ehud Barak, for being too hawkish on Iran. Mofaz is thought to be opposed to a unilateral Israeli strike against Iran's nuclear facilities. Yossi Alfer is a former Israeli intelligence official and political affairs analyst for the website Bitter Lemons seems to me that,
5: at least with regard to the coming months, by joining its most senior decision-making institution, Mofaz strengthens the camp of those who oppose any strong initiative.
4: But the presence of Mofaz in this new government can be read another way. Politically, he owes everything to Netanyahu. Up until 2 a.m., Shaul Mofaz and his Kadima party were heading into what experts agree was going to be an utterly disastrous election. Mofaz is now Deputy Prime Minister, but it's not clear how much leverage he might actually have. Today, Netanyahu said another top priority for his new coalition is to reopen negotiations with the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas.
1: I hope that uh, President Abbas will use this uh, opportunity to uh, resume the peace talks, peace negotiations, because I said before, I don't know how you advance the negotiations, let alone conclude them, without
4: engaging in them. Mofaz is very much in favor. In 2009, he floated a plan to give the Palestinians a state of their own in the West Bank and Gaza, and allow Israel to hold on to most Jewish settlements. Mofaz referred to the plan today.
1: I prepare a plan that uh, speaks about borders and security arrangements first. And I believe that. This is the direction that the State of Israel should negotiate with the Palestinians in order to achieve interim before permanent agreement.
4: Even so, Mofaz seems to view peace negotiations as something of a poison pill. During late-night negotiations with the Prime Minister, Netanyahu reportedly asked Mofaz if he would take charge of the Palestinian file. Nachman Shai, a member of the Knesset from Mofaz's Kadima party, says Mofaz refused.
2: So it will be remained in the prime minister's hands. Whether there will be negotiation, whether we can see some progress, I wish. But I'm not sure this was the first item on their agenda. I'm not sure. Unfortunately, I wish, but it's not me.
4: Reactions from the Palestinians to the sudden transformation of the Israeli government have been mixed. A spokesman for the Islamist group Hamas in Gaza said the new leadership might be even more hostile to the Palestinians than the previous one. An official with the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank was more reserved. He called on the Israeli coalition to work toward peace with the Palestinian people. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI
1: with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond
0: at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Wurman. This is The World. Greek voters said no to austerity over the weekend, and that was easy. Now comes the hard part, forming a new government based on election results. The right-of-center, New Democracy Party, got the most votes, but not enough to go it alone. And it quickly gave up its attempt to form a governing coalition. Now the left in Greece has three days to form a coalition. Here's a spokesman for the Democratic Left Party. Our party, the Democratic Left, wants to have a government in Greece.
6: So we discuss with all political forces except the extreme uh, right to find a solution.
0: It's no easy task building a coalition, as the world's Alex Galifant discovered. Sometimes a coalition arrives
7: seemingly overnight, a fait accompli. The new Israeli coalition is a bit like that. The previous coalition was disintegrating, so the prime minister came up with a new one. Done and done. But Sona Golda told me today things are a bit harder in Europe. She's a political scientist at Penn State.
5: I think the current fiscal crisis is making it more difficult for parties to form coalitions. And then once the governments have formed, it's making it more difficult for them to be stable.
7: The Netherlands is a good example. The coalition government there recently resigned because it couldn't agree on austerity measures. So for now, there's a caretaker government in place, and it doesn't really have any real authority to take big decisions.
5: It makes it very difficult to respond to any new crises that arise.
7: Many other governments in Europe have managed to push through austerity policies, and in some cases they've been punished by voters. Take the UK. In recent local elections, both sides of the ruling coalition took heavy losses. Still, coalitions are a fact of life in parliamentary democracies. If you don't have the required majority... (laughs) You need a partner to step up and help you form a government. Thanks, Jason. Jason Margolis is another reporter here at The World. After After elections, some Oh, are you doing this bit? Sometimes it's obvious who's going to be in charge. There's a kind of a senior partner. But in other times, it can take ages to figure out the shape of a political coalition, even if one party's leading the effort.
5: In Belgium, it took over a year to form the most recent government.
7: At the end of that process, the Belgians were left with a six party coalition government.
2: Six parties? Ritu
7: Chatterjee is another. I'll I'll do that, thanks. Ritu Chatterjee is the world science reporter.
2: Seriously? Six parties? A
7: six party coalition meaning more interests to satisfy and fewer likely areas of agreement. More so-called veto players. Right, the political actors with whom you need to find common ground in order to run a country.
2: You should say govern a country.
7: I agree. Okay, govern a country. Actually, in France and other places, they do things a different way. Parties on the right or the left form coalitions ahead of time.
2: So you know the teams before you vote for them in an election.
7: That's true. But even then, a coalition is at risk when the next election rolls around. Here's Sona Golda at Penn State.
2: Towards the
5: end of a coalition's life, parties start looking ahead. If you're in government, you want to show to your electorate that you are independent of the coalition if it's been unpopular.
7: That can lead to one party pulling out and bringing down the government. Or at least you start to see the coalition start to crack. Say splinter. No.
5: They're not as cohesive as as they once were.
7: In other words,
0: coalitions are rarely built to last.
5: For
7: For the the world, world, I'm I'm Alexander Margolis. I quit.
0: Author Maurice Sendak died today. He was 83. Sendak was born in Brooklyn in 1928 to Polish Jewish immigrant parents. He was best known, of course, for his 1963 classic, Where the Wild Things Are. But Sendak was a prolific author and illustrator of many other award winning children's books. They include Chicken Soup with Rice, In the Night Kitchen, Outside Over There, and Brundabar. He also rewrote Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf, Yiddish style, and called it Pincus and the Pig. It became an album, a klezmer take on the musical classic, narrated by Sendak himself.
6: Did you hear of Boychik Pincus? How he opened wide the gate and hippity hopped over the sweet, warm meadow. <laughs> ¶¶
0: Maurice Sendak there narrating Pincus and the Pig. The music is by the Shireen Klezmer Orchestra. The CD was released in 2004. Glenn Dixon is the clarinetist of the band and is in our studio to talk about his project with Maurice Sendak. I understand, though, that when you called up Maurice Sendak to talk him into rewriting and recording with you on this project, he jumped at the chance.
8: Yeah, well, he had been working on Brundebar, which was a Holocaust opera, and... Uh, he was very depressed about the whole thing, the Holocaust and everything. And this was sort of relief for him. It was cheering him up,
0: mm. actually. What was it like working with Maurice Sendek in the studio?
8: Well, we went to his house and recorded him at his house, and it was amazing. It was, Is that uh, in Connecticut? Yes, down yeah. in Connecticut, yeah. Mm. He showed us around his house, and we recorded
0: in his barn. And uh, he was very gracious and funny. And this Yiddish story of Pincus and the Pig must echo some of the stories he heard growing up in Brooklyn as a kid, I imagine.
8: Well, he really pulled out all of his Jewish background for it, the Yiddish words that are sprinkled through it. He brought out the accent, which he doesn't normally speak in, but he sounds like an old Jewish grandfather talking, and it's, it's delightful.
6: On the branch of a big old tree, a little boy sat of away. Oi ve, oy, oy Gott in Himmel, the gate is open. Is Pincus looking to get killed again? Surely Chaza, that devil pig, and his gang of schmutzige vile schwein will patch poor Pinkus into chopped liver.
0: Now, he was born in Brooklyn in 1928, but uh, he must have been deeply connected to the Holocaust. Many of his old world family perished in the camps. Did he ever say anything to you about that dark background and how it influenced him? I don't know. Maybe it was even the reason he took on the role for Pincus and the Pig of narrator.
8: Oh, absolutely. One thing he said was he loved this story because Pincus wins the battle. And he was so depressed about all the... Holocaust and all the defeat of that. And Pincus came out victorious in the end of this story. And, and Pincus all, is the little boy, the hero. And Pincus the is the little, little boy. He's named after his father. And the pig, his aunt was always telling him, now in Poland they called anti-Semites pigs. Mm. So for him, the pig was like the anti-Semites. In fact, he refers to Chazer, the devil pig. Right, Chazer is Yiddish for pig.
6: No sooner had they disappeared inside than a giant Hazar. Big, fat, bristly, and altogether disgusting. Jumped out of the forest. He smelled bad, too.
0: Glenn, when you woke up today and you heard of the passing of Maurice Sendak, I'm wondering if there was just one image or moment that you had with him that immediately came to mind.
8: It was just for me the fact that this story meant a lot to him, really. He was so happy that the Jewish boy came out victorious, and for him that was—it was very emotional, I think—and that really touched me.
0: Glenn Dixon of the Shereem Klezmer Orchestra, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me.
8: Beatty and I have just
6: caught Chaza, so help us take him to the non-kosher butcher. <laughs>
0: This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a new program in California helps Hmong refugees meld modern medical treatment with traditional healing practices.
5: Part of their beliefs is if you have surgery and you cut a person open, then you're releasing their spirit.
0: Shamans and medicine later on the world. World
1: is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at
0: heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Some of modern medicine's most important drugs are losing their potency. Antibiotics are failing as disease-causing bacteria become resistant. It's happening all over, but one country may play an especially big role in fueling the problem. That's India. A story in the latest issue of Bloomberg Markets Magazine portrays India as a veritable breeding ground for drug-resistant germs. And these germs now threaten the world. Bloomberg News health reporter Jason Gale co-wrote the story. He's in Melbourne, Australia. Jason, uh, this is a powerful story uh, you report here, one that's uh, not very flattering to India, it's got to be said. Explain, first of all, what is it about that country that's causing drug resistance to develop and spread?
9: You're right, it's not particularly flattering, and indeed, um, pretty much every country in the world where antibiotics are used, there is resistance occurring. Uh, the th- thing about India, which makes it unique, I think, is that when you look at the, uh, the drivers of drug resistance, um, India pretty much ticks every single box. We're, we're talking about things like the country's huge production of antibiotic medicines, most of them sold uh, generically, over-the-counter, very easy to get, and very cheap. Um, Then on top of that, we have poor sanitation, half the population not having access to a toilet and defecating um, in the open, which allows fecal material to, uh, to spread from animals and people back into people and animals, causing this constant recycling of fecal bacteria.
0: And for India, the notoriety on this issue uh, even has a name, one gene in particular that spread to many bacteria and makes them resistant to many antibiotics. Scientists have named NDM1. Uh, What does ND stand for?
9: Yeah, well, ND stands for New Delhi. Um, That's the the city where a Swedish man of Indian origin was hospitalized in 2007 and uh, was taken repatriated back to Sweden where doctors cultured bacteria from him and uh, discovered that it resisted. Um, most antibiotics, but importantly, one class called the carbapenems. It was the first time they have observed this particular gene and decided to call it New Delhi metallobeta-lactamase after the enzyme that the gene produces.
0: So this has kind of become a a political hot potato too, because uh, politicians in India feel this could tarnish India's reputation.
9: Uh, Well, there's quite a bit at stake. The country is definitely wanting to... um, a medical tourism hub and is very keen to protect that industry. Are are the
0: drug-resistant microbes a problem even in these clean, modern facilities that medical tourists go
9: to? I think they're a problem um, really across the board, but to varying degrees. Certainly the very modern hospitals, the ones that that we visited and talked to managers of, they strive extremely hard to keep these germs out But these hospitals are not isolated from the communities in in which they exist. Doctors and nurses and food, and um, they're all coming in from outside. And unfortunately, the outside um, does carry this risk.
0: This is not just India's problem, though, as you point out in your report. It's a global problem. Uh, Are we then all facing a future of antibiotic resistance? How much worse could it get?
9: Um, Well, certainly the NDM1 gene is a major threat and has speeded the process of what the WHO describes as um, the potential for a post-antibiotic era. Um, Because uh, with this NDM1 gene, it really only leaves two or three antibiotics that could potentially treat bacterial infections with this gene. So we are coming to the end of the road when it comes to um, antibiotics and what's going to be efficacious in many instances.
0: Jason Gale covers healthcare in Asia for Bloomberg News. His article, The Scourge of the Superbugs, appears in the June issue of Bloomberg Markets Magazine. Jason, thanks a lot.
9: Thank you, Marco. You're welcome.
0: We've got a link to Jason Gale's story. And you can read more about how industrial animal farms are contributing to this global problem in a new blog post from the world science reporter Ritu Chatterjee. That's all at theworld.org. India also figures in today's GeoQuiz. A handful of high school students gathered in a school auditorium in India today. Hello! And hello to you, class. We're looking for the name of their school in the city where it's located. Here are a few hints it's in the capital of Uttar Pradesh, that's India's biggest state, with a population of 200 million plus. So you might not be surprised to learn the school is also a crowded place. It wasn't always that way. The school started 50 years ago with an enrollment of five students. Today, it's grown to about 42,000. It's said to be the largest secondary school on the planet. So what are students talking about at the world's largest high school? We'll hear what's on their minds when we come back with the answer. California's Central Valley is home to thousands of Hmong refugees from Laos. Local doctors and hospitals have struggled to treat them. Traditionally, the Hmong were more likely to see a shaman than a doctor when they were sick, which explains why many of them ended up in the emergency room. But as Shuka Kalantari reports, that's been changing thanks to a program called Partners in Healing.
3: A Hmong shaman dressed in an ornate red costume is standing in a crowded living room in Winton, a small town in central California. She sways back and forth rhythmically as she shakes small ceremonial bells over a young pregnant woman who sits quietly. A rope is lightly tied around the woman's stomach. It connects to another rope wrapped around the belly of a newly slaughtered pig that lies on a plastic sheet in the living room. After the ceremony, the woman and her family prepare the pig for a feast. This ceremony was to help the mother and baby. Mei Yang is the shaman. The monk traditionally believed that physical health depends on the soul's health. In this case, the pregnant woman and her unborn child's souls are bound together. And that connection has to be severed before the birth. Otherwise, both mother and child could get ill or die. The shaman is the only person who can do this soul-splitting ceremony. That's where the pig comes in. The chants are a sort of negotiation with the spirit world. The shaman offers the slaughtered pig's soul in exchange for a safe delivery. Mei Yang says that has been, in essence, the Hmong version of prenatal care. But Yang says things are changing. The
5: Hmong, they had a very difficult time to understand Western medicine. Nowadays, people are more likely to visit a doctor when they're sick.
3: That's because Yang and other shamans are being trained in Western medicine and now are more likely to refer their patients to doctors. This was crucial because Hmong healthcare, especially for women, was in a sorry state.
5: When my patient called to do a ceremony, I usually tell them to go to the doctor first. If the
3: doctor cannot find anything, then they will come to me, and I will do the ceremony for them. Yang is one of many that have been trained at the Partners in Healing program at Mercy Medical Center. It's a unique program by a nonprofit called Healthy House Merced that teaches shamans the basics of Western medicine, like what X-rays are, what heart monitors do, and when to call for an ambulance.
5: This is the X-ray or radiology department, and this room is a CT scan machine room here. and we taught the shaman here in this room also.:
3: That's Cheng Veng He, an interpreter who translates for shamans in the hospital's Hmong patients.. Cheng Veng demonstrates how an automated recording of his voice explains in Hmong how to take a CAT scan for when he's not around to translate for patients.
5: I say, take a breath, hold it, and then you can breathe.
3: He also acts as a cultural broker between the shamans and the medical staff. He says the key is to explain things like CAT scans in a way that's sensitive to how shamans see the world.
5: The doctor uses this to see... Uh, illness and uh, disease, versus the shaman, they can see uh, spirits. So we make that comparison so they understand about the equipment.
3: Cheng Veng He says the Partners in Healing program, now in its 12th year, makes shamans in the Hmong community more trusting of Western health care. The reverse is also true. Doctors now know what to expect from their Hmong patients. I
5: mean, it's bridged that gap from our physicians, our staff, to the Hmong culture.
3: Janice Wilkerson directs cultural programs at the hospital in Merced. She says doctors made some mistakes at first they weren't very proud of and did not want to have happen again.
5: Part of their beliefs is if you have surgery and you cut a person open, then you're releasing their spirit.
3: And you can imagine how that would play out in an emergency room. But Wilkerson says now the Hmong refugees and their doctors know what to expect partly because the Partners in Healing program has trained over 100 shamans throughout California about things like incisions during surgery. Now physicians in countries with growing Hmong populations, like Australia and Germany, look to Merced as a model. For the world, I'm Shuka Kalantari, Merced, California.
0: Eggs, rice, money, and incense are on the altar. You can see a slideshow of one shaman performing her ritual at theworld.org. Time now to check in on one of the biggest schools in the world. The City Montessori School would seem to be bursting at the seams. 42,000 students attend this private secondary school in the northern Indian city of Lucknow, the answer to our geo-quiz. Anu Anand has spent the last couple of days speaking with students at the school. It's all part of a special BBC program that's linking up school children in China, Pakistan, Egypt, and India, among other places. So, Anu, first off, what's the look and feel of this school? It sounds like it could be as big as a city.
5: Well, indeed, it could be as big as the city. And we got so many comments from around the world saying it's bigger than my city. It looks like a pretty ordinary school when you go in. It's got lots of slogans like, you know, each child could be the light of the world. And then you go in, it's an older building. And then what you realize is, is that The 42,000 students are not all in one facility they couldn't possibly be. It would be logistically impossible. So they're spread out over 20 campuses in the city. But this particular uh, campus that we were at was still phenomenally huge. One computer lab we went into had something like hundred desktops. And then I was told that that was one of six computer labs in that particular campus. So a really, really big, big school.
0: So today, those students uh, at the City Montessori School in Lucknow had this opportunity, as we said, to speak with peers in other countries about what matters to them. What did you hear from students?
5: Well, I think they're caught between an old India and a rapidly changing India. And their concerns reflected that. It was everything from why do we have to wear traditional Indian uniforms as opposed to Western dress but they also wanted to talk about the brain drain for example they felt the smartest students were going abroad and that they weren't necessarily being recognized for their contribution to the global economy one student actually brought up a comment that President Obama made in 2011 when He was at an Indiana factory saying that innovation should be coming out of places like Indiana, not India. So Mm -hmm. they feel that they're working really hard, but that the the view of Indians and certainly of Indian students is still too negative around the world. Lots of different things that they wanted to talk about. Pressure of school, you know, and the expectations on getting good grades. So a lot of different issues.
0: Well, let's listen to 17-year-old Baradosh.
1: Many times we are stopped by our parents uh, from doing things that we want to do because uh, they think that it's, it might not be right for us, for our living. Or like what? Like we think of choosing different career options except being a doctor, engineer or lawyer. We need to opt for like sports or music or dance. I would like, if I got the chance, I would like to be a musician. But my parents don't
2: allow. <laughs>
0: So he's just like a lot of young people all over the world who want to be a musician. What did you think the students took away from this experience today of connecting and speaking with same age group in other countries around the globe?
5: Well, you know, just to give you an idea, I mean, this was a public holiday for them and they came in, some of them, uh, you know, taking a 45 minute ride by Otto Rickshaw to get to the school to take part. And I think what they took away was just the chance to actually speak their minds and actually talk about you know what the teachers might consider rather mundane things, like pressure of exams, wanting to stay out late at night, or maybe choose what you want to do with your life so and the the chance to actually exchange those opinions with children in places like China, you know where they might see those kids as being you know, big global competitors, but also kids in Cairo and even Burma, etc., I think was just absolutely priceless for them.
0: Did this exercise also give them kind of a rare chance to speak their minds? I mean, are 17-year-olds in India still expected to be seen and not heard?
5: They are definitely expected to be seen and not heard. You know, and I think... This is a, a fundamental flaw, really, in the you know Indian mindset, the Indian educational system still, and that is it's a very top-down approach. It's very much do what you are told, and they certainly are chafing against that, and it's something that's a big issue in India because although India is producing a lot of children, who can pass exams or who can crunch numbers, they're not really producing innovators because they're not really producing people who can, are allowed to think for themselves. And this is not something that I'm saying. This is something that leaders of industry in India, recruitment firms have been saying, and they've been saying it for a long time. So it's a concern with these 17-year-olds and even younger kids who are really tired of being pushed around.
0: The BBC's Anu Anand in Lucknow, India, Lucknow being the answer to our geo-quiz today. Anu, thanks a lot.
5: Yeah, thank you. Cheers.
0: You're listening to The World from PRI Public Radio International. The world is brought to you by PRI with support from
1: PBS and Masterpiece, presenting the new season of Sherlock, starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman as crime fighting's favorite team. The game is on Sunday,
0: may thirteenth at nine, eight central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman, and this is the world, and this is the Wooden Sky.
6: How we go? You're I've been dreaming about melons and you've been dreaming about gold. And if I ever make it home, oh, if I ever make it home, and my key won't open the door. Well, I've been thinking about selling off every shirt I own to stand and make it out here in the cold. Just trying to make it out on my own. Well oh my God, it still means a lot to me Oh my God, it still means a lot to me Well oh my God, it still means a lot to me well, oh my God, it still means a lot to me Oh my God it still means a lot to me With oh my God. still means a lot to me
0: Canadian band The Wooden Sky is Gavin Gardner, who you heard on vocals and guitars and harmonica there, Andrew Wyatt on bass and vocals, Simon Walker also on vocals today and guitar, and Andrew Kip Kekowicz, who plays percussion. Welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Thanks for, having us. Nice for having us. Yeah, thank you. And Gavin, uh, you're the uh, spokesman for uh, The Wooden Sky. Um, a lot of critics have called you a Canadian band that plays variations on American traditional music. Kind of sounds like another Canadian band that did that some time ago, that band called The Band. I've heard of that band before. <laughs> I've,
10: I, I know the band you, that you're referring to.
0: Are they at all a touchstone for you?
10: I think they're sort of a touchstone for a lot of bands. Mm. In Canada and probably in the U.S. too, we were actually lucky enough to see Levon this summer before he passed. Yeah, fantastic! It was awesome. We got I to see him back in su- February. You did, eh? yeah, yeah. Yeah, we stood, stood on the side of the stage, and he played at Ottawa Folk Fest. And it was—he was so happy to be playing. It was awesome.
0: Now you do have this kind of almost Southern twang on on one track in particular, "Child of the Valley." Um, where does that come from? I don't think that exists up in Canada.
10: Well, you'd be surprised, actually, as you really? move further west you sort of moved towards Alberta. I grew up in a province called Manitoba, and I, for a couple summers, worked at a country music station as a DJ, actually. And so I picked up a few pointers there from, you know,
0: Alan Jackson. Gotcha. Garth so Brooks. Y- you're a very close study on this stuff. I've, I've, I've worked, I've done my homework. And so when you when you think Canadian influences in your music, what are Canadian influences in your music? What are, you know, where do you go?
10: Uh, the beaver tail, uh, the loony, the <laughs> hockey, tragically hip, um, I think maybe just the landscape and the surroundings because there's so much space in Canada. I mean, America has it too, actually. It's such a vast country. And Canada especially is so vast with such a small population. And so we spend a lot of the time on the road and I think maybe in that way the country itself influences the music more than sort of like
0: the iconic Canadian things. Well, there's a great tune uh, that you're going to do for us now called "Angelina," where uh, there is definitely a sense of Americana to to this. I mean, it could have been in "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou," but also you feel that space. Mm-hmm. So let's have a listen to uh, "Angelina." Can you do that for us? I would love to.
6: It all seems so strange to me But you know they won't believe us So come here, child, they open now
0: Fantastic harmonies on that. It was really, really beautiful. Thank you. Thanks. You recorded this latest album, Every Child, A Daughter, Every Moon, A Sun, in Montreal. Now, you did some touch-ups afterwards in post-production, going to a number of locales, including apartment buildings, churches, a- and a farm. Hmm. What was that about? We kind of just worked vo- with what we had, and
10: the different locations all provided something different to the record. Like Recording in a church is just such a great experience because the the room itself is designed to be an acoustical space. And so we had access to the church through Simon's father, who is the, the minister there. And they have two beautiful pianos and a great-sounding room, so it just seemed like too good of an opportunity to pass up. And then recording at the farm, actually, was when we were out in Ottawa to see Lee Von Helm. Well, we played
0: at the festival as well. Mm. And then we had a day off out at the farm, so we just spent the day recording. All original songs on this album. Uh, however, for encores uh, during concerts, you often turn to a Tom Petty's tune, American Girl, which is kind of weird for a Canadian band. Um, American Girl's hard to do acoustically, so you have another Tom Petty tune in your back pocket. We have about 15 Tom Petty <laughs> tunes in our back pocket, actually.
10: But this song that we're going to do is actually off Wildflowers. It's called Crawl' Back
0: to You. Okay, so let me just thank all of you for coming in. Gavin Gardner, Andrew Wyatt, Simon Walker, and Andrew Kip Kekowich. You are the Wooden Sky. Thank, thank you for having you. us. Thank you.
6: side of the road the day to break so we could go down into Los Angeles with dirty hands, worn out knees yeah. ooh I keep crawling back to you and ooh I keep Crawling
10: back to you. The
6: ranger came with burning eyes. The chambermaid woke surprised. Thought she'd seen the last of you. She shook her head. Let him in. Ooh, I keep crawling back to you. Something in your eyes trying to say to me, it's gonna be all right if I believe in what's up.
0: The Wooden Sky are currently in the midst of a few U.S. dates on their tour. They're in Boston tonight, New York tomorrow, and Philly on Thursday. Go to theworld.org for more info and to see a video of The Wooden Sky performing here in our studio. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening.
1: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by contributors to the PRI Program Fund and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.